All right, so good to be with you this Lord's Day, and thank you for the warm welcome and for receiving me and my congregation who's been meeting here on Sunday evenings for about a year and a half now. We're very thankful for your kindness and generosity towards us, and uh, we're, we're so thankful that you have welcomed us here uh, to love and serve alongside you in our community, and thank God that he has been uh, gracious and merciful to each of us. I want to begin by way of just a brief introduction. Uh, I was born in Dallas, Texas in 1970, and I was born in Presbyterian Hospital. My wife, on the other hand, was born in 1971 at Baylor, Baylor Hospital, and for many years she referred to that as the Charlie Brown Hospital for some reason. Don't know why. But all I wanted to say about that is that is evidence that you could take a Presbyterian and a Baptist and bring them together somehow and they can work things out. Uh, The thing I've learned about both of those hospitals is that if you need care, if you need treatment of any kind, they're both excellent and provide excellent services for you. And you can find uh, health and, and, and care and treatment in both of those places. And I think there's an analogy there that we could say the same about Presbyterian and Baptist churches. And as Forrest Gump said, that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) The goal that I have today is to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ in two ways. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 5 through 11. And that passage of Scripture breaks down in two, two ways. The first part of the text that we will see, the first few verses, deal with... Jesus as our suffering servant. Jesus as our suffering servant. And you will see in that section the total humiliation of Jesus Christ. And then in the second half of the text, you will see that Jesus is our sovereign Savior. Jesus is our sovereign Savior. And in that section of Philippians 2, then you will see that the total exaltation of Jesus. And so an easy way to think about this passage that we'll look at in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, 5 to 11, is that the first part of the of the passage, the first verses, 5 through 8, are sort of a movement downward. Okay, keep that in mind. We're going to be moving downward from heaven to earth. And then there will be a transition, and then we will see the movement upward from earth to heaven. Now, this is the Easter season, and I know we celebrated Easter last Sunday, but many Christians are still kind of in the aftermath of Easter, thinking about the resurrection of Jesus. And unfortunately, too many people forget that part of the story too quickly. They just wait till the next year to think about it. And then the rest of the year, it's been my experience that Christians will dwell on the first part of the story, the suffering servant, the death and the passion, the, uh, the sufferings of Jesus. And then they just give a few days of the year to the victory of Jesus over sin and death. Well, I want to continue that part of the storyline a little bit more today. Bring them both together, but then end with this accent on Jesus Christ as the victor over sin and death. And in God's providence, the songs that we sing today point us to that. So I'm very thankful that you have those songs echoing in your hearts and your minds. And that we do get to see victory in Jesus. And then we will highlight this in Philippians 2. 
So let us begin with a word of prayer, and then I want to read our passage, and then we'll walk through uh, the things that the Spirit gave the Apostle Paul to teach us. Oh God, we thank you for your kindness and mercy towards us. We've gathered here today in the name of Jesus Christ. Our hearts are open, our ears are open to hear the word of God. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will write the words of the gospel on the hearts of all who hear today. Grant us faith and repentance towards Jesus. Help us to turn from ourselves and to trust in him. We pray, O God, that the word of God will be illuminated by the Holy Spirit so that light shines out of darkness. And we pray, O God, that this word that is written on the page will not just be words in a book, but that you will make them living and active for us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So the word of God today comes from Philippians 2. Verses 5 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient To the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And that is the word of God. Now, as I mentioned, the first part of this, verses 5 through 8, deal with the total humiliation of Jesus. And here we get a picture of the suffering servant of Christ. That language of suffering servant is an echo from the Old Testament scriptures where the prophets referred to the coming Christ as the suffering servant of the Lord. And it wasn't just Isaiah, the prophet, who said that Jesus says that all of the Old Testament scriptures prophesied that he would suffer and be put to death by the hands of men. So all of the Old Testament scriptures in one way or another are hinting at and pointing to the fact that Jesus was going to come and give his life for his people, give his life as a sacrifice for sinners. And you can see this as you go back through the Old Testament, if you allow me just to highlight a few stories that I'm confident that you know. I want to read those stories or put this reading into the story uh, from the point of view of after the cross. We're reading the story backwards, and now we see Jesus clearly, don't we? Hindsight is twenty twenty. So when we go through those stories in the Old Testament, we see all kinds of remarkable things happening. We see that the suffering servant of the Lord was hinted at along the way, even in the story of the Passover, for example. In the story of the Passover, we could say that Jesus came and overcame Pharaoh, the gods of Egypt, slavery and death. And at the same time, he was sheltering and shielding his people from plagues and from the death of the firstborn. 
We could move forward a little bit in the story and we could say that Jesus on the day of atonement, the high holy day of the people of God in the Old Testament, that on that day, Jesus overcame sin and death by taking the place of God's people by going under the knife and then being put on the altar and turned into smoke as a sacrifice. But he also took their place by taking their sins away from them out into the wilderness as far as the east is from the west. Move forward a little bit more and we learn that Jesus at the slave market and the prison yard overcame the power of sin, the flesh and the devil when he gave his life in order to pay the ransom penalty for the people of God. He gave his life and with his blood, he purchased redemption for the people of God. And that secured our release from sin and from death and even from the power of the devil. You fast forward a little bit more and now now we're back into Isaiah where we learn that Jesus is the substitute for the sins of God's people. And it's this Vision of the suffering servant that's captured our imagination so much in Isaiah 53, where we learn that it was the will of the Lord to crush him and that he bore the sins of many and that he gave his life for the transgressors. And beyond that, he even prays for them. He intercedes for them. He fast forward a little bit more and now we're into back to Philippians, back to our text, and we see how all of this came about is because Jesus who existed in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be held in a tight fist. In other words, he wasn't so selfish and stingy that he just held on to it and couldn't let it go. He he opened his hand and he became man. He took on the form of a man and not just a man. He took on the form of a slave. Your English translations probably say servant, but we like to clean that up a bit. It's actually the word slave. He took on the form of a slave and then being found in the form of a slave, he becomes obedient to God and he gives himself to the will of his father and does his father's will. Obeying his father every moment of his life, obeying his father through the course of his life, obeying his Father, even as he obeyed his mother, obeying his father, even as he followed the the law of God, obeying his father every inch of his life, even to the point of saying, not my will, but yours be done. There were things Jesus didn't want to do, but he did them because his father wanted him to do them. In our tradition, we say that this office, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge. He was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill the law. He endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified and died. He was buried and remained under the power of death and yet saw no corruption. So if we take all of these stories together and all of these things together, what could we say about the person and work of Jesus Christ in his total humiliation? What could we say about the person and work of Jesus Christ as the suffering servant of the Lord? Well, we could tie all of those loose threads together and say that Jesus is our shelter and our shield 
That Jesus is our substitute. That Jesus is our satisfaction. You see how all of these stories center around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we see this in his ministry as the suffering servant of the Lord. Now, we take all this together. We see that he's not just the suffering servant of the Lord. Because even in the midst of his sufferings, even in the midst of his service, he was still He was still our sovereign Savior. These two things have to go together. You can't separate them out. They actually belong together. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 15, a fascinating passage where he says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. And that he exposed them to public shame on the cross. And so it was through the crucifixion that Jesus actually exposed the world and its rulers, the forces of evil, the devil, as the shams that they are. Some of you are familiar with this story dating back to the early 70s, I believe. It was a story of Ali and Foreman. In a boxing match, I think it was called the Rumble in the Jungle, remember? And then the big storyline that came out of that was how Ali won that match by using a technique called rope-a-dope. That's what he called it. Some of you remember that, right? I want you to think of the cross as the ultimate tactic, the ultimate rope-a-dope. Because it's at the cross that Jesus is inviting The devil, the world, the rulers and authorities, spiritual forces of evil. He's inviting all of them to come to him. He's goading them to come to him and do their worst. Bring the worst you have. Let it fly. Bring everything you have against me. And guess what they do? They do it. They take him up on it. And they wear themselves out in trying to destroy and undo him. But in so doing, they are the ones who are destroyed and defeated. And so the cross becomes this sort of ultimate cosmic rope-a-dope in which God in Christ is disarming and disgracing the rulers and authorities of the world that stood against us. Now, what were they standing against us for? They were accusing us. They were holding up our sins against us, pointing out that we deserve death, that we deserve hell, reminding God in their accusations that we had violated covenant relationships, that we had disobeyed his law, that we deserved death because the wage of sin is death. And what does Jesus do at the cross? He takes the written accusation that's against us. He takes the Charges leveled against us. He takes the sentence that should have been judged against us and nails it to the cross. But it's not simply nailed to the cross. In Colossians 2.14, we learn that what Jesus did is he abolished it. He made it null and void. And the way he made it null and void is he took his blood over it and he expunged the record. He cleansed the record against us. And so if you are in Christ, if you have turned from your sins and you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, the good news is that there is no record of sin against you. God does not keep a file cabinet 
with all of your sins that he can pull out at any time and say, ha ha, this is what you deserve. That file no longer exists. The gospel says that Jesus not only disarmed and disgraced the rulers and authorities, the gospel says that Jesus also destroyed the record that was against us. And that, by the way, is not a reference to the law. Jesus did not take the law of God and nail the law of God to the cross. No, he took the charges that were against us. And those are the things that are nailed to the cross, which is much better, by the way. Because if the law were nailed to the cross, as some wrongly say, our charges, our sins would still be there. So the good news is that Jesus has dealt with our sin problem by giving his life in our place, by shedding his blood for our sins. This is what it means that he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. It's a shocking statement, even as Paul pens this by the inspiration of the spirit. It's a shocking statement. And yet it's in that movement, it's in that downward movement all the way to the cross and then to the grave where Jesus was under the power of death for a time that God is dealing with our sins and he's dealt with them decisively. Now, all of that can sound very abstract and ethereal. So here's what I want to say to you personally. So if you're listening and you have ears of faith, hear this. That if you put your trust in Christ, then he has dealt with all of your sins. And if that's not clear enough for you, let me say it this way. He's dealt with all of your sins in the past. He's dealt with all of your sins in the present. And he has dealt with all of your sins that you will commit in the future. This is what it means that he has died for our sins. It is not as some people say that he dealt with all of our sins up to the point that we decided to follow Christ. And now it's up to us to keep the slate clean. No, it's not, that is not good news. That's more law. Now, the, the gospel says that grace gets you started and grace gets you finished. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ up to this point. There's more to say. Now, in thinking about Jesus disarming the principalities and powers and disgracing them and putting them on display, here's what I want you to think about. I said it's the ultimate rope-a-dope. And if you don't like a boxing analogy, here's another way to think of it. Here's what Jesus was doing at the cross. He turned the gallows of their torture into his throne of grace. Now, we don't think of the cross as a throne often enough, but it is. It's where he ascended. He was lifted up between heaven and earth. And what's going on there? For our naked waking eyes, we see a man who has been wrecked and abused by human beings. A man who has been tortured and undone, shredded to pieces. That's all we see. A man who looks like a victim. And yet Paul tells us, no, there's more going on there than meets the eye. What's going on there is that victim that you see is actually the victor. Over sin and death, over the flesh, the world and devil. The victor you see hanging on the gallows is actually uh, the victim you see hanging on the gallows is actually a victor sitting on his throne of grace. And that is why we call sinners on our mission. We call sinners to go to the cross, to go to Christ for there they will find salvation. Go to the throne of grace in your time of need. 
I love the way Calvin expressed this in his commentary when he says, There is no tribunal so magnificent, no throne so stately, no show of triumph so distinguished, no chariot so elevated as the gibbet on which Christ has subdued death and the devil, the prince of death. Nay, more, Christ has utterly trodden them under his feet. Amen. Now, if the death of Jesus at the cross were the end of the story, if I stop preaching right now, how would you feel? Some might say, well, it was a good story. I don't know about the sermon, but it was a good story, right? But let me say to you, if I stop preaching right now, that story would be a disaster. It would be more than a disappointment. It would be a disaster. Because it would only be part of the gospel story. The gospel story goes beyond that. There's more to the story than just Jesus suffered and died on the cross for our sins. There's more to it. That's right. And that's why Paul writes the way he does. And that's why he goes on to say that in all these things... Jesus is not just a victim. No, he is a victor. In all these things, Jesus is not conquered. He is more than a conqueror through his father who loved him. And so when you read Philippians 2, go back to our passage here in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Now we see Christ as victor. We see Jesus as our sovereign savior. We see the total exaltation of Jesus in this passage. Paul begins by saying the father has highly exalted him. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, the word highly exalted could be translated like this, that he has been super elevated. That he has been hyper exalted. It's Paul's way of trying to get across the point that Jesus hasn't just been lifted up a little bit. No, he's been lifted up a lot of bit. Okay, so he's been highly exalted. And he's been highly exalted because of his triumphant work at the cross. The exaltation, by the way, refers to two things in the life and ministry of Jesus. The first thing it refers to is his resurrection from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. God gave the verdict that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the sovereign Savior. How does he give evidence of this? By raising Jesus from the dead. But that's not exalted enough. Even Jesus said in his own own life and ministry, don't cling to me yet. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. And so he wanted to ascend to the Father. It's in that ascension, that second exaltation, the super exaltation where he goes to take his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what Paul means by Jesus being highly exalted. First resurrection, then ascension. And this idea of Jesus ascending up to the heavens, being highly exalted by God, comes from the Old Testament prophets. I'll give you one example. When you have time, go back and read in Daniel 7. 
And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, there's this grand vision of one like a son of man who is seen in the vision as ascending in the clouds up before the ancient of days. And he presents himself there. He presents himself before the ancient of days and all of heaven and all of earth are bowing down and praising him. They're exalting him. They see that he is the victor, the triumphant one, the one who has conquered the kingdoms of this world, the prince of darkness and all of those things. And Daniel puts it this way. To him was given dominion and and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in that vision from the prophets, they're just seeing glimpses of this, hints of this. We now see the reality of it all in Jesus Christ. And what do we see? We see Jesus ascended to the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. We see that Jesus is the glorious Lord and the victorious King who sits on his throne of grace, his throne of glory. And he rules over all nations and peoples and kingdoms of men. He is the victor and God, the father has highly exalted him to that position, a position which Jesus earned for us, a position which Jesus invites us to share as we are seated with him and in him in heavenly places. But that's not all. God the Father also gave Jesus a name that is above every name. And his name is Lord Jesus Christ. His very name means sovereign Savior. Lord is sovereign. Jesus is Savior. The Savior of his people. And so you see how the story finds fulfillment. Not just in the descent from heaven to earth and then to the cross and the grave, but the ascent from the grave to the earth to heaven. It's that full movement downward and upward. It's in that full movement that we hear the song of the gospel, that we hear the story of the gospel. So in this, Jesus has overcome sin and death. He's overcome the devil. He has authority to save people from their sins. He has authority to save them from the serpent. And God the Father has given him this name. And two things are required by the giving of this name. He has graced Jesus, bestowed on Jesus this name. And God requires two things from everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Two responses are required by God at the name of Jesus. And the first one is that every knee should bow. Whether it's a knee in heaven, a knee on the earth, or a knee under the earth. Every knee should bow. All angels and all men, even all demons, must bow down at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole cosmos will present itself before Jesus And prostrate itself before Jesus because he is the sovereign savior of his people. 
The second thing that is required at the name of Jesus is that every tongue should confess out loud that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are no exceptions and there are no exclusions. Everyone must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the word confess here doesn't just mean utter the words that, you know, form the words in your in your mind and then spit them out of your mouth. The word confess means to say the same thing about Jesus that God says about Jesus. It means to agree with God, the father, that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And everyone, everyone must do that. So there's some good news and some bad news here. The good news is that everyone who confesses Jesus is Lord. On this side of their death, on this side of the coming of Christ to judge the living and the dead, everyone who confesses Jesus is Lord shall be saved. Amen. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. Everyone who waits to confess that Jesus is Lord until after they die, until after Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, they will still confess Jesus is Lord. They will still agree with God the Father that Jesus is Lord. But that confession will not save them. It will be too late. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in worship, in praise, in adoration of who Jesus is. And at the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess Jesus is Lord. Now, part of what this tells us is that there is coming a time when no tongue and no mouth of man or angels or demons shall ever curse the name of our sovereign Savior again. Maybe you haven't grown weary of hearing that. But I'm sure God the Father has grown weary of hearing people take the blessed name of His Son and use it as a curse. But those days are coming to an end for those and for others. All the tongues of men, all the languages, all the tribes and peoples of the world will come together in a cosmic chorus. And they will confess the truth about Jesus. Now, what shall we say in response to all of these things? Now that we know that Jesus is our suffering servant. That's part one of the gospel. And now that we know that Jesus is our sovereign savior. That's part two of the gospel. Together they make the whole. What shall we say? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who shall be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That is, who shall bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? And those who have put their trust in Christ. It is God who justifies. It is God who declares sinners right with him. On the basis of what Christ has done for them. So who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Or persecution? Or hardship? Or danger? Or nakedness? Or sword? No. For in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. In all these things, we are more than victors through our sovereign Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered as a servant for us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And brothers and sisters and friends and guests, this is the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And I urge you with all your heart to embrace it by faith. To confess Jesus as Lord. To believe from the heart that God raised Him from the dead. That you may be saved. Let us pray together. Adorable Redeemer. You who was lifted up on a cross are ascended to highest heaven. You who as man of sorrows was crowned with thorns. Are now as Lord of life wreathed with glory. Once no shame more deep than yours, no agony more bitter, no death more cruel. But now no exaltation more high, no life more glorious, no advocate more effective. What more could be done than you have done? Your death is our life, your resurrection, our peace, your ascension, our hope, your prayers, our comfort for your glory and by your grace. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.